RJ didn't complain. That was part of the problem. I wished he had expressed his resentment, but instead he kept up a cheerful exterior. Sometimes I waited for him to complain or start a fight, but his calm exterior remained intact. His coolness drove me frantic because I was used to the emotional intensity of my parents. The happiest times in our marriage occurred when we were aboard RJ's yacht, usually on cruises to Catalina Island, without other people. Hello, and welcome to Chapter 9 of Fatal Voyage, The Mysterious Death of Natalie Wood. I'm your host, Dylan Howard. The day after Natalie Wood's tragic death, Robert R.J. Wagner was back home in Beverly Hills. As the world mourned one of the most famous and beloved actresses to grace the silver screen, R.J. remained isolated in his mansion, focused on controlling the narrative surrounding Natalie's death. Flanked by his high-powered Hollywood attorney and boat captain Dennis Deverne, R.J. made sure that they were all telling the same story in an effort to keep suspicion of foul play away from him. In this episode, we'll hear a stunning first-person account from Dennis, who claims that RJ held him captive under the watch of bodyguards for over a year after Natalie's death. We'll also hear new details about how he moved on, and quickly, with yet another famous Hollywood actress. And finally we dissect the disturbing and extreme measures that RJ took against Natalie's own parents and sister Lana, immediately following Natalie's funeral. But first, let's begin with Dennis Deverne. The morning I got to Robert Wagner's house from being picked up at Long Beach Harbor, there were a lot of people at the house. I was taken right up to Robert Wagner's bedroom where his lawyer... Paul Zippern was there, and he, they told me they told me directly, face to face, this is going to be our story. This is what we're going to say. You're going to be appointed to a lawyer, one of our lawyers, and this is what our story is going to be. The story was that when when Natalie went missing, that she must have gone outside her stateroom because the dinghy was banging against the hull of the boat, and and she she couldn't sleep, so she tried to retie the dinghy, and she must have slipped and fell in the water, and um, maybe she bumped her head on the swim platform, and then when she slipped in the water, nobody knew anything. You know, I mean, she was gone. She was missing. Dennis soon found out that sticking to a certain story was not all that would be required of him by RJ and his entourage. Dennis was asked and agreed to stay at the Wagner home, thinking he would be of comfort to RJ and the girls as well. And I was to stay living at the house there was because I felt like maybe RJ and myself, we needed each other. Uh, The housekeeper, Willie May, she was very, very kind with me at all, way before that. And at that time she was, you know, wanted to make me as comfortable as possible. And, you know, I guess they felt like 
they they needed me to have some kind of you know somebody around me. While the girls and all those who loved Natalie were in mourning, RJ made choices that many found odd. Choices that included a stunning new love interest. It was shortly after the funeral one. Actually, it was during the funeral when Jill St. John was there, and they they did spend a lot of time together. Jill St. John stepped into his life pretty quickly. Here's Marty Rawley, co-author of Goodbye Natalie, Goodbye Splendor. I don't know if Robert Wagner was previously having a relationship with Jill St. John before Natalie's death, but I do know that one of the first people on the scene after Natalie's death at the home was Jill St. John, and it did not stop. She was there for Natalie's wake almost every day afterward. He moved on real fast after Natalie's death. Um, He was seeing Jill St. John within two weeks after Natalie's death. Their official date for dating was Valentine's Day, 1982. So that's officially 10 weeks after Natalie's death, which is still (laughs) quite soon after losing the supposed love of your life. It's hard to place judgment on anyone's actions after losing a loved one. But moving on from the love of your life, just weeks after, does beg the question, just how much did Natalie really mean to RJ? RJ and Jill St. John would eventually marry on May 26th of 1990, and they remain married today. But I can't help but wonder if Jill, like Natalie, and Barbara Stanwyck before her, is just another woman who RJ has used for his own gain. Ironically, someone who has been repeatedly accused of using RJ and the story of Natalie's death is Dennis Deverne. But there is strong evidence to suggest that like Natalie, Dennis too was a victim of RJ's. It was more or less like he knew that I was in his house and he knew that I couldn't go anywhere because there was... uh, people at the front door, you know, because there was a lot of media out there on Cannon Drive. RJ seemingly wasn't taking any chances and kept Dennis away from a ravenous press who were hungry for any additional details that could help explain what had happened to Natalie. And as a tactic to keep Dennis happy and quiet, RJ made sure there was plenty of alcohol. This is about keeping me in their house so I don't get out to anybody and start talking to anybody. That's what the bottom line was. Yeah, I mean, that, that's what it was. And and, and and to wake up in the morning, hey, Dennis, do you want to have a Bloody Mary? Oh, yeah, that sounds good. I thought, hey, here I am. I'm in a beautiful house in Beverly Hills, you know, from a little one bedroom being shared by two other guys in Marina Del Rey. You know, it's like, you know, it's like, well, oh, this isn't really too bad. RJ attempted to make Dennis's stay feel like an extended vacation. And although Dennis did enjoy the perks at first, it didn't take long for him to feel trapped. Was Dennis a guest or worse, a prisoner? He would go to work or something and I would be left there. I'd be left there by myself. I'd lay down, take a nap, get up, maybe go out to the pool. You know, I mean, I, I was like, I was. I mean, I wasn't living like, oh, this is great. I'm going by the pool. I was like, you know, well, I can't go anywhere. What am I, I going to do? It was like, I couldn't really go anywhere. I believe I only got out of that house a few times. I mean, I, I, was, I was starting to really feel 
uh, claustrophobic. You know, like at nighttime when I would go to my room, you know, like if I, if I felt like I wanted to go downstairs or or maybe just, you know, just move around, I, I really couldn't do that because the first time I put my hand on the doorknob of the bedroom that I was in, it was like a magnetic lock. They wouldn't allow me to open the door. And, you know, I mean, I had a small TV in there and, um, it, 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 it was just like, it, it was just like I was in a prison. He knew that I couldn't really go outside because there was a bodyguard on the outside of the door. The revelation that Dennis was literally locked in his room, inside RJ's home, and under around-the-clock surveillance does seem outrageous. How could this have happened? Actually, my girlfriend came and knocked on the door there one time, and RJ's bodyguard, his name was Joey Devane, and uh, she she told him, she says, you know what, she says, I want to see Dennis. And he says, well, he says, he, he says you can't see him right now. He's, he's, he's busy. She was real spunky. And uh, he came back again. She said, you know, I need to see Dennis right now. And that's when I told them, I said, you know, I need to go see my girlfriend. I need to chill out a little bit and see my girlfriend, you know. And uh, that's when they took me over there. When I was spending some time with her, I mean, you know, we were sitting in the living room. We were just enjoying ourselves. And uh, all of a sudden, the banging on the door comes. and said, we have to go now. I said, well, damn. I said, you know, we've kind of just been here for like a half an hour. They said, no, we got to go now. You know, I said, hey, wait, can, you know, my girlfriend got a little upset. They literally grabbed me by my neck and literally dr- dragged me by my neck down the sidewalk and threw me in their car and took me back to Wagner's house. I was like, man, this is just going to be way, way too much. Dennis knew he was in trouble. At the time, he confided in just one person, his close friend Marty Rooley, who explains. When he was told to say nothing, he went along with it. But deep down, he knew he he wouldn't be able to live with that. He was very afraid. He... <laughs> He, in his mind, deep inside, he knew what Wagner's capable of. And, you know, he's thinking, will I be next? RJ was getting more desperate by the day to keep the press from finding any potential cracks in his story. He had to keep Dennis in line, on message and under control. In an effort to do so, RJ pulled his Hollywood card and got Dennis a job on his popular TV show, Heart to Heart. RJ thought he could buy Dennis's silence. Frank Westmore, he was like RJ's like right-hand man. And he says, you need to get him to do something because it's not good him just being idle all that time. He says, you get him, get him in the, in the screen actors guild and you get him into being the extra and you get him on, you get him on heart to heart is to benefit him because you know what? If it was to benefit me, it would have been more than just a job being an extra. I mean, at that time, extra was paying $76 a day. And if he was doing something to benefit me, he would have given me like some bit parts or something like that. You know, that would have benefited me because then you would be making some money. Life as a TV extra wasn't working out. And Dennis desperately missed the life he had previously working in and around boats. So with RJ's approval, he began to do basic maintenance on the Splendor. But that also became a source of stress for Dennis. 
I felt like I was in real danger a few times in regards to Robert Wagner because I remember, I recall one time when, when there was a stranger that came down to the dock and he's, oh yeah, nice boat. He said, he said, you know, he said, you got to be aware. And I thought, oh, what would make him say something like that? And it just made my stomach kind of drop. And then another time I got a phone call and I wish I could remember the guy's name. And uh, he told me, he said, you know, you, you, you better watch, better be careful on things you say. And I thought, oh my God, I, I, I thought, think, I start to think to myself, this is something you see on TV where, you know, somebody's getting a, their, their life threatened. And, you know, my stomach just got all really, really butterflies. And I thought, I think something's trying to tell me something here, you know? As a matter of fact, <laughs> I kind of still feel that way. If something ever happened, I'm sure they could pinpoint why it happened and, and who did it. You know, so I mean, if something happens, it happens. The day I left Robert Wagner's house, he gave me a check for $6,000. And he said, you can probably use this, get your own apartment and uh, maybe see if you can start out on your own now. And I left with a $6,000 check and that was like, okay, Dennis, you're on your own. And that's the last, last we ever contacted each other. Though Dennis had left Los Angeles and was now away from RJ in the accompanying media spotlight, he remained deeply scarred by the events that took place that night in 1981. Around this time, Lana was also seeing firsthand the darker, more domineering side of her brother-in-law, a side that had frightened her sister on more than one occasion. Though she had failed to speak to him at his home after the funeral, Lana still wanted to make an effort to stay in touch and remain a family. She loved Courtney and Natasha and wanted desperately to stay in their lives, but RJ felt otherwise. I remember the next time that I made an attempt. All of a sudden I went, oh my God, it's his birthday's coming up. And I was worried about him being alone on his birthday because I'm an idiot, blatantly idiotic. Um, calling the house and Katie Wagner answering the phone. And I went, oh, RJ, and, and his birthday's coming and, and what are we gonna do? And I'll take him someplace special and, and you come in the kids and the thing. and. And she said, oh, everything's been planned. It's all okay. You don't have to worry about anything. And I said, oh, okay, what, what's going on? And she said, well, we're just having a party here. And I said, okay, great, what time? And she literally said to me, um, you know, it's just going to be RJ's friends. And I said, yes, Katie. And those were also all Natalie's friends and my friends. And she said, well, around whatever time. And I said, fine. Putting any pride or ego aside, Lana would attend RJ's birthday party with a friend at the time. Alan and I went and shopped for a gift for him. And um, we went to the house and I uh, gave him his gift. He said nothing. I mean, he made it very clear that I was not welcome there. And I don't know why other than, okay, it's tough. Death is tough. You know, so face that. So that was it. We went out into the living room and I said, I want to leave. 
and we just, we left. And what about Natalie's daughters, Courtney and Natasha? Nothing from the kids, nothing, no contact, nothing. It's like a whole, my entire life was turned upside down. Everything, they took her away. So it was bad. I, at that point, started falling apart. And things only went from bad to worse when the issue of Natalie's final will and testament had to be dealt with. I don't think it was until um, I said to Alan one day, I said, I've got to go get another pair of of black heels because mine are, are shot. And he said, why are you doing that? And he said, in the, in the will, Natalie has left you all of her clothing, all of her furs, all of her, you know, everything. And I don't remember how it is he knew that. But I said, well, I can't go there. I can't, I can't go to the house. I just, I don't know that I can deal with it. And he said, I'll take care of it. So he called a couple of his friends. They rented a van and it took them eight hours to go back and forth. And I didn't have any place to put these things. I went and talked to the manager because I was in an apartment. It was a two double level. Um, but I went and talked to the manager and I said, can I put things in the hall? Because Alan was saying, we'll, we'll buy hangers. And um, so she said, okay. And the top floor, I'd open the door to the hall. There were racks of clothing out there. And then the bottom floor, you know, open the door and there were racks of clothing out there. And I couldn't walk to my bed. I had to step around things. My daughter's room was filled with stuff. I mean, it was, it was more than an entire floor at Saks Fifth Avenue. It was, you know, it was crazy. And um, then I remember it just, it got to me. One day I said, I, I can't, I, I don't, I don't know that I want anything. I don't know what to do. I don't know, you know. And he would say, just pick out a couple of things. Let's just, let's get it out. And so I did that, basically very few things. And um, he arranged to have the, and I honestly don't know what happened with the rest of it. But I remember RJ was in the press saying, how could she have sold her sister's clothing? It's funny, and I accepted the judgment. I felt badly about myself. It made me feel like, how could I have done that? And then I remember back that I was raising my daughter since she was a year and a half old. I never got any help. I didn't get child support. I wasn't receiving alimony or anything. I was working to take care of myself and a kid. And I needed money, every chance I could get. And yet I accepted his saying those things about me because I felt like he was right. But what was I supposed to do with all that stuff? Then, all the things that he had of Natalie's, he, he put it all up on, for auction and sold letters and photos and all these things. But that was okay. But me and trying to live, that wasn't okay. Wow. Okay, a little double standard there. And those are the times when I become really angry. I remember uh, RJ um, contacting me through his attorneys, saying that um, he would like 
all her furs. And I said, well, I'd like to keep, I'd like to keep one. And um, I said, okay, I agreed to it. And he paid me for them. Archie was just being really cruel. RJ had inherited everything else that belonged to Natalie. And yet, he felt the need to take away some of the few things she had left for Lana. The question we have to ask ourselves is, why? Was this just another example of RJ exerting his dominance? And he didn't stop there. Years before her death, Natalie had purchased an apartment for her mother, but RJ had plans for that too. RJ threw out of the one that Natalie had given her um, because he wanted it for Katie and he said she didn't need that big a place. So she had that taken away. And that was in the will that my mom would would keep that place, my mom and, and dad, but my dad passed away. My mom... Um, was given a, um, a monthly salary of $2,000 to answer RJ's fan mail. So she used to sit with all these photos and write RJ's name, do the envelope. She was given the photos, she was given the envelope, and she was given stamps. And she would sit and write his name to Anne, love Robert Wagner, and put them in an envelope, seal them up, and we would have to take all those things to the post office and mail them. So let's absorb this. While Natalie was alive, she took care of her mother. But after she died, RJ not only took her home away, but made her earn her keep by running his own personal fan club. What I know um, from Natalie's will is that everything was left to Robert Wagner. He knew that. And... You know, she made provisions for her mother and, you know, clothes being donated to her sister and the the kids being taken care of by Willie Mae, the nanny. But all of her assets and Natalie Wood was the frugal one. Natalie Wood is the person who saved the millions. She had many millions of dollars and many assets and it was all left to Wagner. By now, Lana understood the message that she was no longer welcome in RJ's world. But what happened next would shock her still. I got a call from uh, an agent. Lana, it's Roland Perkins. I'm like, wow, how are you? How nice. What's going on? For reference, Roland Perkins recently passed away at the age of 84 and was one of the founding partners of CAA, which is one of the most powerful Hollywood talent agencies in the world. We chatted superficially for a couple of minutes. He said, I'm going to tell you something, and I'm going to tell you this because I really like you as a person. And I said, what? And he said, stop trying to get a job in production or acting. You've been blacklisted by Robert Wagner. And I said, he knows that many people who give a good goddamn whether I work or not. I said, I've got a child to support So I started calling production companies. This is what I co-produced. This is what I worked as a social producer, but I've been director of development. I was VP of this, and I did this and this and this and this. Couldn't get a job. Couldn't get a job. And didn't have an acting agent anymore because I had hung that up to go into production, which I loved, loved it. Um, And then I got the phone call from Roland Perkins. I never said anything about the blacklisting because there was nothing I could do about it. And I went to work. I didn't work in the industry, but I worked. I, um, I worked as a 
a sales girl at Nouvier Furniture. I sold furniture. I worked at a, a doll shop and collectibles in sales and opened it and closed the store for them. Um, I worked at Sprint. Yeah, I did a lot of things. So let's get this straight. Lana Wood was also a rising star and played a Bond girl opposite Sean Connery in Diamonds Are Forever. And now she was a shop girl selling dolls and mobile phones. While Lana struggled to build a life for herself, take care of her daughter and mother, the unanswered questions surrounding Natalie's death fell by the wayside as she focused on simply getting by. On the other hand, Dennis could not stop thinking about what happened to Natalie. He had to tell the truth about what he saw, and he could no longer keep it a secret. About a year and a half after Natalie was gone was the first time that Dennis said to me there was foul play involved in Natalie's death. And then it took about six months after that where he told me about the bottle smashing and the arguing. And that's when I started to go to work on writing. And from the minute I heard that foul play was involved in Natalie's death, I just felt a blanket of obligation to get the truth out there. I mean, Natalie deserved it. On the next Fatal Voyage... And I'm, I said, you know what? I said, we we need to call somebody. I said, let's turn on the searchlight to see what, you know, if we can maybe see where, if we see her or something, because she's not here. Obviously, she's not here. She's out She's out there. He says, no. He says, we're not going to do that. I said, well, we have to look for her. He says, we're not going to do that. I said, well, we have to call somebody. He says, we're not going to do that right now either. Let's just have a drink and, and, and think about this. And I'm thinking, the last thing I want to do is have a drink and think about this. You know, there's a woman out there in the, in the freezing cold water. Fatal Voyage is executive produced and hosted by me, Dylan Howard, and American Media Incorporated. Executive producers also include Kelly Garner and Carolina Saavedra from Treefort. Engineering, mixing, scoring and original music by Tom Monaghan. Additional editing by Josh Workman. Make sure to subscribe to Fatal Voyage on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.